This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Brooks Morrison, the founder of the Design Social Pop-Up. As a sales rep, Brooke kept encountering two problems. Small, independent textile brands were getting lost in massive, multi-line showrooms. And designers in smaller cities often had to drive hours to visit the nearest design center. In 2019, Brooks launched the Design Social, a traveling pop-up where the creative talents behind indie brands could showcase their work directly for designers. In four years, she's brought the show all across the country, from Darien, Connecticut, to Newport Beach, California. I spoke with Brooks about the power of personal connection in a saturated market, why the show is built around creatives, not sales reps, and how she searches the country for overlooked pockets of gold. This podcast is sponsored by Laloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Laloy's handmade collections are sought after by interior designers for their breadth of designs, skillful craftsmanship, and good weave certification. Explore those collections and more at laloyrugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. And follow them on Instagram and TikTok at laloyrugs to see the rugs from even more angles. This podcast is also sponsored by BDDW whose furniture, ceramics, lighting, artwork, and much more are all designed by artist Tyler Hayes and are made entirely from scratch in BDDW's Pennsylvania studios. You can find Tyler's work in their New York, Los Angeles, and London showrooms, but everything from BDDW classics to Tyler's latest prototypes are also available in online auctions held about once a month. To register and to stay updated on the next auction, visit bddwauctions.com. And now, on with the show. Before we get into telling everyone about the design social pop-up, let's start by telling people a little bit about what you were doing prior to starting this operation and, and, and what led you to found the design social. I actually started the design social pop-up when I was working at Moore & Giles. And I worked for Moore & Giles for almost 13 years. Um, at the beginning, I played more of a marketing role, uh, leading their team as a VP of marketing. And then eventually switched over to more of a creative role, um, managing our relationships with tanneries around the world, with the leadership team there, and also managing our international and domestic shows and our showrooms. Um, and prior to that, I really worked in a lot of different roles in, in public relations. So I started my career uh, right out of UVA uh, at Ketchum Public Relations. And then after Ketchum worked in various places across the country, doing various kinds of PR. Um, you know, I worked for Vail Resorts at one time. I also worked for um, an agency that specialized in, in PR for interior designers. I only really bring that up because our design social pop-up has such a big events part component to it and, and knowing how to kind of produce events is very important. Um, I certainly, 
did a lot of events for Warren Giles, but I think <laughs> working for a global big PR sure. agency from the gates like Ketchum really kind of, you know, set the tone for me in terms of what was needed to produce a successful event. Well, and I want to and I want to talk about that. So I want to I want to get into that in more detail because I think one of the things I'm hoping we can discuss are the elements that have made the design social so successful. But what you were trying to do with Morin Giles at the at the time as you were saying was So one of the things I think especially, you know, with a lot of things coming online, websites and social media is how fast product was getting to designers. And in the case of Morin Giles, you know, most of the the brands that participate in the pop-up are, are boutique fabrics and wallpapers, just for some context. Now, I wasn't involved with that. I was selling beautiful leather that we developed around the world. But leather can be intimidating in some cases if you don't know a lot about it. Designers can be easily intimidated, and so can salespeople. And sometimes in that case, when when there's not a lot of understanding, your salespeople tend to run away from from things that are hard to sell. Um, <laughs> sure. And so, you know, we were having this challenge in the showrooms, really kind of retaining the knowledge and the comfort um, to be able to sell effectively. And when I meet a lot of times with my uh, textile designer or wallpaper designer friends, uh, they were having a little bit of the same problem, not really because they had a hard to understand product, but because their line was so small. And then when you get to a multi-line showroom that can be 50 plus different lines, they were kind of getting lost. And they really didn't have the marketing dollars to you know, really put put forth that effort as some of the other brands they may be that also may be in the showroom and and brands outside the showroom. So, you know, there was this kind of need to form a competitive advantage, if you will, among these brands, among brands that like leather that were kind of intimidating, and then these smaller independent brands that often got lost in very large showrooms. Um, so that's kind of how it started. And, you know, our very first one was in Nashville in September 2019. I think we had probably 15 to 18 brands participate. And, you know, it has grown from that 15 to 18 to 55. So it's really exciting. So how did you land on Nashville as the first place that you wanted to pop up? These designers in Nashville and Charlotte were so busy that it oftentimes was hard for them to get down to let's say Atlanta and, you know, shop all the time um, in the design centers. So part of the concept uh, that was this kind of integral in the design social is that we bring the, um, the products to them in a very effective way that's time efficient. Um, so instead of, you know, going door to door as you might do, certainly mm. we did that at Warren Giles, um, <laughs> You know, you can come together with a collective group and go to Nashville and go to Charlotte and go to Birmingham and make it more time effective for the designers while making it more cost effective for the participating brands. As you thought about what you wanted that first pop-up to include, so you mentioned you had 15 to 18 people who were participating at the time. What were some of the elements that you that you knew you wanted to bring to this that would make it feel different from 
you and I have talked in the past, salespeople have often taken a ballroom at the Hilton and shown up yeah. with a yeah. right with a bunch of brands. And so the concept itself isn't new, but so much of what you were doing felt as though it was on a higher level. So so what 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 were you thinking about that you wanted it to to include? I even feel like there was a little bit of a and I and I'm sure you didn't impose a dress code, but it was so it was so <laughs> fun the way floral dresses became de rigueur for for everyone and and so there was this fun fashion element as well as uh, as well as the the social element that's built into the very name of what you were doing. Exactly. And I think you bring up a good point is the the name Design Social. Um, I have to credit my friend Brad Ford for really coming up with that because ah. Brad and I are both from the South. And I think that element of social has a bit of nostalgia to it, which we love in the South. Uh, <laughs> you remember your ice cream socials and you remember, you know, social activities growing up. And so that was an important thread to have in it. And then the other one is really this concept of like grouping together and collaborating between sales reps is not unusual. They've been doing it in hotels. It's it's really effective for the designer and the reps. I would say that ours is different in that it's creative to creative. So part of the um, part of the requirement, if you will, and the difference between the design social and other shows like rep shows is that we require the actual creative or creative lead from the brand to be there. And I think when you have that creative to creative energy, in a show, it just makes it even more exciting. And um, you've got that just pulse of creativity running through the show because they essentially speak the same language. You know, my point in kind of getting these brands together is I really felt like there could be a competitive advantage in putting a face to a brand mm. and putting a personal story to a brand. As you were saying earlier, they get they get lost in a great big showroom, and and so it seemed like they were coming to you because here was this opportunity to hopefully connect more directly with their clients and and show themselves in a way that they just couldn't in a traditional showroom and in and in a market where where there there weren't those big design centers as you were saying. Oftentimes we're going, I would say for the most part, to markets without design centers. And so, you know, they may or may not be represented in that territory. A lot of times smaller brands, you know, they showrooms are very expensive. You know, reps are very expensive. Anytime you're going to give somebody um, a road kit or a display in a showroom or the ability to sample product, it's always, I think I talked when I talked to most of our participants, like the memoing, the sampling mm. is the most expensive part of their business. And so it does give those smaller brands. I mean, automatically, some brands think they have to be in the greatest hits of the territory, which are New York, Texas, you know, California. But, you know, in some cases, you know, some of these markets weren't the best markets for the brands. Not every market is good for everybody. Not every approach is good for every brand. And I think a lot of our events give that insight to the brands for not a lot of investment to find out really what the, the sales strategy is for them because it doesn't have to be a big metropolitan area all the time. No, absolutely. And and I'm I'm so glad that you raised that point. But I want to come back for a moment because one of the things that you said that struck me was you rattled off the top markets and you said New York, Texas, and California. And 
it's been so striking to see Texas suddenly be this top market for practically everybody. And mm-hmm. I feel like that is a very recent phenomenon. When did that happen in in your world? When did that show up for you? And and I'm curious about it in part because I feel like Nashville too is one of the, mm-hmm. who used to talk about Nashville as this market we had to be in, right? And now everyone wants to, uh, Schumacher opens up a, a store there. Let's, let's be there, right? I mean, so, exactly. so talk to me about that a little bit. It's interesting because California is one of the weakest markets for a lot of brands, ironically. Um, right. I don't know that's, if that's because a lot of the Californians moved to Texas, which I think a lot of people from Texas would agree with, um, or Nashville. <laughs> Much to their dismay. I don't know. I can't tell. But <laughs> Yeah. I feel like there's this influx of Californians in Texas. Yeah. And really, Texas came on my radar again when I was at Warren Giles. I, I have, I'm friends with the ladies at Supply Showroom. And they represented Warren Giles and still do. And so I got to see kind of Austin, um, you know, come up. It's still still growing so fast. Talk to me about how the event grew and, 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 and the scale and size that it has achieved today. Because as you were saying earlier, humble beginnings in the early days, getting the word out. But now you've got a waiting list. You're, you're telling people, no, not, not everyone can, can come and participate. So, so tell me about that. Sure. Um, well, let's just start with saying that this started in 2019. And our last event was in Charlotte on March 11, 2020. So um, that was- <laughs> And what happened then? Just, what, what, what went on then? Huh. <laughs> we just got that right in there before the world shut down. Um, and we weren't able to continue until June uh, 2021. And Charleston was our first event. So there was a pause, and I'm just Mm. pointing that out um, because I do think that it had a positive effect. Um, It was one of the silver linings of, I think, that time period is that this concept resonated even more with designers and participants. First of all, people really wanted to get out and see each other, period, after that time and really you know, kind of embrace the events that they wanted to attend, which were, you know, I would say some of the old shows that people felt like they had to go to kind of got marked off the list or dinners or what have you. Additionally, I think that the markets that were, we kind of focus on, which are these tertiary markets outside of design cities, were even more important. Somewhere like Charleston, South Carolina grew so much so many, you know, so many uh, people moved down from the Northeast, especially New York, down to, to Charleston. And, and these communities, these designers in these communities were even busier than before they were uh, before the pandemic. So, you know, those two things kind of really made a difference, I would say, you know, and that overall, you know, the, the, our industry probably was busier than it's ever been because everybody was focused on the home because that's where they were all the time. Um, and so, you know, the demand for these products were, were, were even greater. So, you know, I do think that worked in our favor and that's not a normal experience that you have is, is this, this factor of the pandemic being there. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you to register for BDDW auctions. You can look back at puzzle paintings, triple X ceramics, and prototype designs that were featured in recent auctions, and also stay updated on the next one by registering at bddwauctions.com. And now, back to the show. 
Getting back to the geography for a moment, because I'm I'm genuinely curious about your impression of this big geographical shift that we've that we've seen. And and interestingly, picking up on what you were saying about California, everybody thinks California is this hot market, but actually, in recent years, it's it's been a much more challenging market as some of these other some of the more southern markets or midwestern markets have have become uh, much much bigger partially because people have moved as you suggest but uh, other things are at play there too and and as you point out with supply and the James showroom often if there's just some great showrooms in a in a specific city they might well outperform what you would imagine that particular location might do otherwise just because a really well run showroom is there, right? Absolutely. Do you get the sense that all the COVID shifts and and moves, is that going to remain? Is Texas going to remain this important market? Is is Nashville going to remain this this key place for for design businesses to focus on? Or are are people starting to move back to California or they're starting to 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 come back to New York in in a way that they that they weren't maybe even a year ago? You know, I think so. I mean, I think that COVID taught us that you could really work from anywhere. I mean, when I graduated from school, it was either go to New York, go to LA, go to San Francisco. And that was just what you did. And I think, you know, this day and age with, you know, proving that, I mean, I I think most companies have gone back, but there's a lot more flexibility in where you live, which I think is a great thing because, you know, what you can get in New York is not the same as what you can get in, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, in terms of your house footprint and, you know, the quality of life. And I think, you know, what's the next market that is going to be kind of a hot market? I'm not sure, but it's, it's tell us, tell us, Brooks. Think, That's I what don't I want to know. know. That's, tell, me. Tell, us, um, tell us the next hot yeah. market that everyone should be tripping over themselves you know, to get right to. Right here in the South, a lot of people, and this is, a, again, you have to qualify it in terms of size, but it's um, Greenville, South Carolina is, you know, getting a lot of buzz. So, you know, I think it's these little pocket communities outside of larger communities. Um, one, one market we were looking at that we haven't been to yet is Chagrin Falls, which is right outside of Cleveland. I'm intrigued by Cleveland. Um, hmm. I'm intrigued that the, the, the area, that's the one area of um, the U.S. where there's actually an Hermes outpost there. And just I'm like, wow, that is, that is really interesting that Hermes would have kind of a, you know, a shop and shop in a, a community in the suburbs of Cleveland or in Chagrin Falls. So it's like there must be a little pocket of gold there somewhere. <laughs> well, exactly. I wonder what research they did to determine because, yeah, as you say, yeah. I mean, they're they're pretty sophisticated about where they show yeah. up, and and that one is a, a surprising one. Exactly. And there's some markets that I'm very intrigued at that I don't think would necessarily be the greatest markets for us because, you know, largely I would say we're very pattern and color driven, the show. And I've heard a lot. I've always been intrigued by Toronto or Seattle. And I think generally speaking, you know, because we always kind of investigate with brands that are represented there or have some presence there, is that they don't use much pattern and color. So there's always these places that you know, just like a showroom may not be good for a brand in a certain place and a road might be better, there just may be markets that aren't as good for us that may be better. And that doesn't mean it's a bad market for, you know, a solid wool. You know? No, 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 that's a that's a great point. And I think 
people used to talk about Boston, for example, as being a much more conservative market when it came to design. And, and they didn't think that that was a place that you were selling a lot of pattern and color, perhaps. Right? Right. And I, I don't know if that has, has evolved. I mean, obviously- I think it has. Pockets. I mean, you look at the, you know, I think Studio 54, some of our brands are represented there and in the design center and, and they do quite well. You know, the issue isn't so much- when you're a, a small boutique brand, you kind of have to be very strategic about which showrooms you invest in and which locations because it's expensive, as we talked about. And so I'm seeing a lot of, um, of interest in places like Boston or Washington, D.C. Um, or Denver, which we're doing in 2024 in, in June because they probably wouldn't go into a showroom there because it's kind of a secondary market for them and they can't afford it. They want to, they want to put their, you know, they want to go ahead and commit to somewhere like New York or Texas or Atlanta before they do these smaller markets. At the end of the day, they can't afford to do everything. And so they, they, that there is interest there. And and, and especially with brands who may want to manage some of those sales efforts themselves or, you know, or have a road rep. Um, because the showrooms, as I said, are, are, are quite expensive. Coming back to the challenges that we alluded to earlier, it's harder to get in to see people. A lot of people aren't necessarily in the office the way they used to be, and, and people are working hybrid much more, so you don't know if you schedule a sales call at an office on a Thursday, how much of the staff is really going to be there. I, I'm, I'm constantly getting the feedback from sales reps that it it's never been more challenging, never been more challenging getting to see people, it's harder, you, you, all sorts of demands. Tell me how that has affected your other business, which is you're out there trying to show fabric lines, right? And and I imagine it's gotta be harder for you too. So, so talk to me about that. It is, you know, I have a, just for background, I have a small boutique, I guess, representation firm here in Atlanta. I think the name of the game these days, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, is um, trying to create loyalty because there's so many places and showrooms that designers can get product now. And the territorial lines are kind of going away um, in some of these small independent brands with, you know, a lot of brands having, like mine, having, you know, being able to shop online for product. Um, And so by doing these events, within the territory and really showing up for designers and trying to uh, bring the best experience possible to them and being mindful of their time. You know, I think you create loyalty. They're really appreciative of you making that effort to create this event for them and really make, you know, respectful while being respectful of their time. Um, Because there's a million products flying there at designers way every day that are being set. And how do you make that more personal? How do you kind of, you know, collaborate with others to make it more time effective. I think there's so many brands that just want to do the road show by themselves and go door to door. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the best avenue all the time. Again, this is, mm. you, you just have to be mindful that, that not everything works for everyone in the same place. Like you just have to kind of be aware and, and maybe that approach will work really well in a certain market, but maybe it won't in another market. So what can you do better? How can you do it differently? I learn about that all the time in our events and I think our participating brands do as well. It's like, you know, it's not a one size fits all model. Any, you know, I think in back before 
social media and when designers expected to go to showrooms, that was one way, like that was the way they did it. But it's just constantly changing and evolving and you just can't, you know, take it for granted that one strategy is going to work everywhere across the country. Talk to me about pricing. It seems as if more and more I get designers saying to me, I wish more of these companies would just give me an idea of pricing mm-hmm. so that I could know, is it $300 a yard or is it 150 a yard? And it, right, can I right. show it to this client or should I, should I hold back? And I wonder how that conversation is coming up in, in your world. At the pop-ups, I kind of leave those conversations to the discretion of each participant. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, a lot of the designers, you know, kind of have those conversations, may have those conversations, you know, at the event. Um, most of our participants are not selling retail, so they're only available through the design trade. Um, that's to say there's some that do sell retail, but I think for the most part, you know, it's mostly our, our shows, by the way, um, I don't think we've discussed are, are to the design trade only. So it's only right. designers yeah. coming in and your sure. designers. Um, and so I think that there are those conversations that happen there that maybe I'm not privy to. Um, but in my sales business, you know, I think it's always, um, always a good idea to be upfront. Do you find that a lot of the people that show with you have pricing on their own websites or for the most part are people shying, shying away from that? The only ones that have pricing on their websites sell retail. So usually what mm. they'll, you'll see on their website is a retail price. Um, you know from talking to Katie from CW Stockwell that they sell retail. Um, Lake right. August is not a participant in this, but I represent her and she sells retail. So usually any mm-hmm. more Giles has retail you know, pricing and then the designer has a discount. So usually if they're selling retail, the cost you're seeing, if they ha- usually if they have a pricing on their website, that is not a trade pricing. There's usually a login or something that where they can, you know, get that. So it's not because some clients don't want to charge as much, but most of the time, sometimes designers want to charge more than that. <laughs> so you have to be careful. You know, you know all this. Exactly. And and that seems to still be so much of the reasoning is that some designers mark up this way, some designers discount and then mark up. And there's, right. they all there's, have a different right? business model. Exactly. There's lots of different models. And when you go around the country, you you can kind of fill up a station wagon with people's pricing models because every market seems to have different ones. And again, I get it. And whatever works for people, rock on. But it's, it's interesting because it still seems that for all of the talk about how everything's much more digital, that's a component of something that isn't happening digitally is 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 pricing being out there. And yeah. it still seems as if designer's preference is no thank you. To your point, give me a login, give me something, right. create create something. They don't want their clients some, to see it. Yep. It's totally understandable. I think the design a lot of the designers just say, tell me how to make it easier. You, you know, if if there was a login and then everything had prices. Great, uh, but but it it seems like not not many companies are are doing that, and it's a lot of back and forth about tell me the price for this or the price for that. Oh, yeah. uh, but I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So we've we've talked throughout this conversation about all of these small lines and and trying to make their way, and there's still so much interest in coming out with new fabric lines. You and I have talked about digital printing and the ease of digital printing has made people feel that the barrier to entry is perhaps even lower to coming into this industry. But 
if we're counseling people who are thinking about starting a small fabric line, what do you? Because I'm sure many people reach out to you, Brooks. Uh, you oh, yeah. Know, right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, what do you What do you tell them? What do you say to them? Most frequently, they're artists that that I'm seeing because I'm just seeing the interest in the pop up um, are artists that are now doing their work on a digital fabric. Um, which they do beautiful art, but that's just another layer, um, mm -hmm. another layer of, of, I guess, saturation. I mean, we've already got so many independent brands. Digital technology has made it made the whole business very accessible, if you will. Um, so I, I am approached by a lot of different brands to participate. Um, I know a lot of the really well-known showrooms are bursting at the seams and, um, and there's just an availability issue, and 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 we are too in a way, um, but but just get out there, and and I think the most um, important thing is to remember that even if it may be a separate brand, um, a different brand other than yourself, collaborate. I mean, it's about co collaboration, not co competition. And I think these independent, and that's another reason I think these shows or events have become so successful is because all of the participants really want to collaborate and make this event the best they can be. And they collaborate outside of the show and there's no competitive thread within the show at all, which, you know, I think as you get in the larger brands that, that can exist generally speaking. Um, and so I do think that, you know, doing shows maybe with a, a number of artists that are like you that have just launched a fabric line and, and doing that independently. I mean, it's just a place to start. Um, but, Unfortunately, we're at the day and age where there is a lot of there are a lot of brands coming up and um, there's not always the space across the board in each market for them. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Laloy. This season, Laloy finds inspiration from interior designers who bring a unique eye to their work, like their collaboration partners, the New York based design firm Carrier and Company. New handmade Goodweave certified rug designs from Carrier and Company by Laloy are in stock now. Explore them at laloyrugs.com. That's L O L O I rugs.com. And stay tuned for Laloy's spring launches, which are just around the corner, by following at Laloy Rugs on Instagram and TikTok. And now, back to the show. Have you gotten the sense we 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 talk so much at Business of Home about the slowdown in the furniture industry? Obviously, over the past year, RH just came out with a with a loss in their recent quarter because sales have have slowed down and expenses are high, and all the rest have have been struggling on one level or another. Obviously, you're selling less upholstery, you're selling less fabric. Uh, one assumes you're selling uh, less fabric for window treatments and all the rest as well. Has that been a conversation for, for a lot of the people that you work with? And are they taking any meaningful action to slow down new product releases or to, to scale back in some other way that's that's meaningful from, from what you can perceive? Well, most of our fabric brands, they print to order. So, you know, mm. some of them take stock, especially, of course, if they're screen printing or hand printing it. Um, but a lot of the, the inventory issue um, isn't really as pressing for, I would say, two thirds of our brands because they print digitally um, and can print on demand. 
And I think the ones that that do take inventory are very smart about it. Um, you know, someone like Serena Dugan or Katie from CW Stockwell, Katie Polsby. I mean, they've come from the background where they know, you know, how to scale and and how much they've been trained in kind of inventory management from from their experience. And so I do think, you know, we are, you know, they are doing it smartly. Um, my favorite, and I think a lot of our participant and attendees' favorite parts of the events are our business of home talks with Caitlin Peterson. We usually feature our participants because um, I think the designers always have a lot of opportunity in these panels to talk, but a lot of you know makers, textile designers, wallpaper designers, what have you, um, don't. And so this has been a really cool addition or constant. Caitlin's been with us since New Orleans in, in November 2019. But most recently in Newport Beach, um, we had John Robshaw and Peter Dunham as our as our panelist. Yeah. And Peter was talking about, you know, the pull between his creative impulses and what he would like, you know, to put out there in the world and then his CFO's, you know, reaction to that and 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 how and, and how that interplay works. I do think that those elements are enjoyable as well for the designers, our attendees, and our participants. Um, there's a real lack, and you know, I wouldn't say our our, our attendees or our participants are kind of, you know, have the principal title, but they want to learn. They're there to learn. They're there to connect. You know, I think that's why you know I love business at home, and and Peter loves business at home, and I think he said this in his talk is just you're learning about the business aspect. I mean, we all like to see you know yeah. beautiful product and and meet the people behind it, but having that element of that conversation that's addressing kind of the business of all of this is has been a it's been a wonderful addition. And hats off to to Caitlin for for being with us from the start. We're so appreciative. Well, and it, you know, it's interesting, and Caitlin and I have spoken about this, and, and Caitlin really enjoys it so much. So interestingly, along the lines of what we've been talking about throughout this conversation, she loves being part of that community. She also loves coming and supporting what are primarily women-owned, women-run businesses. And and that's a really interesting part of this whole dynamic as well that, that Caitlin appreciates a, a great deal and that I love about this too. I, I love that, that this industry, not that it's been easy to break into, but there are a lot of barriers that have been removed and and as you were saying you can participate in a show like yours you can you can build a strong instagram presence you can collaborate with some some other people who have had a bit more experience and and find your way you can also find a lot more resources than you could years ago before you didn't know who everybody was getting their wallpaper printed from but right, now right. you can find out pretty pretty quickly and uh, it it turns out that some of the key people happen to be really nice and they'll help yeah. you too right, right. Uh, and, and it's a it's a very supportive industry and as you were saying sure everyone's trying to do business but often there isn't this neck biting competition feel to it but there, mm -hmm. there's a lot Absolutely. of right there's a lot of collaboration collaboration camaraderie and um yeah. you know it's just and it's just really great to see like you could put together a show and think oh 
gosh, I don't know if everybody's going to get along. And everybody does. And it's in, 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 a, in a great way. And, you know, we have brands that are, you know, as you said, the one woman shows, I mean, primarily we're at 85 percent fabric and wallpaper. You know, we have I'm excited that we have, you know, three to four rug lines. Now we have beautiful hardware lines, but we also have some beautiful furniture lines. Now, furniture lines can't as easily pop up because there's expense with furniture and moving it around. And so it's not all fabrics and wallpaper. I wanted to make that point, but um, we have some great, you know, but it's easier for those type of brands to, to pop up, um, you know, with us. So we're grateful for all of them. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, just this FaceTime to really talk meaningfully about the product and understand and having that conversation on the other end, because so many of our participants don't really get to see the reaction to their product because they're not selling it. And I think that's another valuable point that I've just kind of moved in is that these shows provide an opportunity for product development because unlike, you know, just moving through your reps and maybe your showroom's going to give you information or not when they present, you're never going to get this much feedback um, on your, on, on what you're showing and, and what, you know, you see a designer get excited about, you know, that's been so helpful for some of our brands that launched during COVID, like Maisie Path, like Alexis Audette, um, is like, she came Ugh. out of the pandemic, One not having, <laughs> isn't that great? She had, she had never shown her, her line. And so to have this opportunity to, to, to actually see personally what the designer's reaction was, was invaluable. And it, there's a lot of companies like that because we all went through the pandemic and a lot of people had a lot of time to create. Um, but that's another thing that, you know, I think is, is wonderful that, the, that these participants get to see the reaction and get the feedback firsthand um, to really inspire them to move in one direction or the other, or maybe conceive of a new collection after an experience, after a pop-up event. Material Bank, is, is that a conversation that people are having? It seemed like it was a it was a big commotion when it first came out and everyone was thinking, oh, can I participate in that? Should I participate in that? Are people wanting to be on that platform or are any of the lines that you work with meaningfully well, on Warren there? Well, Giles, I think, was one of the first ones. Um, that signed on. And I think that totally yeah. makes sense for Moore and Giles, especially because they have, they're not only dealing with residential designers. I mean, it first really was geared to more hospitality designers. Um, it's right. kind of morphed into a more variance between the different sectors. But, you know, I do think, you know, that was right for them. I also know that at the beginning, at least, it was kind of pricey. And, you know, again, memos are very are the most expensive parts to a lot of everybody that participates is probably would say that's the, the priciest part of the business is the memos. And so I don't make, know if it makes sense for, for everybody, but I think it's a great idea. It's again, one of those things that we talked about is, you know, not everything is good for everybody, um, but it doesn't mean it's, it's not a fabulous idea for a handful of, of brands. Obviously they've become very successful. And I think, you know, they, especially for products like marble and things like that, you know, I think that that it makes sense and, and stone and what have you, but maybe not a small, you know, fabric brand that's just kind of more of a boutique independent specializing and really in, in more in the, with a residential focus. But I, I love that idea. And I, I thought it was a very valuable concept when we were first introduced to it. You mentioned just in closing, so for everybody who's in the fabric business, yes, fabric sampling, 
number one cost, number one pain point, number one source of anxiety. Is anybody doing anything innovative that you've seen to somehow reduce those costs or sample less or I, I mean because when I talk to so many fabric companies oh my god they can't believe their multi-line showrooms are just sampling like mad sending them out willy-nilly pell-mell there's no system around it I mean it just seems as if no one's figured that out well, I mean, you can't sell it unless they they have it. I mean, the, the, there's not, I don't think there's a magical way around There's that. a sales rep's be, answer for you. Is, Listen, if my yeah, client right? doesn't have that sample, they can't. There you go. Look who I'm talking to. She's like, library. what? What do you want? It's, it has to be. And I think it's funny enough, like I, ha I just started working with KK Harris and her samples, especially the larger scale, have gotten larger. Um, because I really, you know, I think with those, you know, more uh, larger scale patterns, like you can't sure. sell, you can't sell that from a smaller swatch. And I think Katie at CW Sockwell has done the same with, you know, her larger scale patterns like Martinique is like, it's essential. And, you know, if you don't see every color in that particular memo, that that might be an issue for a designer. So I don't think there's a way around that. I think a lot of brands have asked the fabrics or the memos to be returned um, mm. once they're done using it. But who wants to be done using it if it's they really love it? They want to respecify re it for other projects. So um, it's all about it's also about you know the tactile nature. Like you want the client also to feel the linen. Um, it's not just about the picture. Otherwise we could do it all like with digital printouts. They want, you want to experience like all senses experience a product, especially at a certain price point. So I don't think there's a, an easy way to get around that. I think it's a necessary cost of doing business. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think everyone is hoping that there will mm -hmm, be sure. some, <laughs> so, some alternative to it, but, uh, but it doesn't look like it's happening anytime soon. Okay. So East Hampton, Right. Oh, let me get Palm you the Beach. full schedule. We'll do it in order. So we have um, Palm Beach Design Social, which is going to be um, on March 7th in Palm Beach, of course. Early June, we're going to do Denver, Colorado, which I'm excited about. It's kind of our first foray in the true West. Um, in July 11th, we are going to do East Hampton Design Social. And then we are doing Darien for two days. We're going back to Darien. That was a proven market. Unfortunately, we could not accept all the designers in that wanted to come. Um, so we're going to do a two-day there on October 8th and 9th. And then on December 5th, we're going to do Charlotte, North Carolina, or early December, I should say. I'm not quite sure about the date, but we're going to do Charlotte, North Carolina. We're going back to the Duke Mansion where our you know, last event was before the pandemic started. And um, again, we're really excited about, you know, and I'm already thinking about 2025 and maybe going overseas. So um, we are thinking about doing something maybe in London in 2025. Well, it seems like you've got momentum. It seems like you've got a waiting list. People want you to come to their town. There's a lot of interest. So it, it, it seems like the, the wind is, is at, your, at your back with all of this. And, uh, and that's very exciting. So congratulations on all that you've built. And, and it's, it's a thrill to get to talk with you about it. So thank you. Well, thank you, Dennis. I've always enjoyed, you know, talking with you, listening to the podcast. It's such an honor to be on this. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com. 
where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.